Overdrive. Hello and welcome to Overdrive, a program that luxuriates in the realm of cars and transport. I'm David Brown, and in this program we have new stories, including new solutions for sanitising autonomous vehicles. And in a significant interview, we begin the first of a series of chats with motoring journalist and author John Smiles on his latest book, Speed Kings, Australia and New Zealand's Quest to Win the Indy 500, this week about the Australian who was there at the beginning in 1911. In feedback, Dean Oliver reminisces about seeing just how a great international rally driver controlled an unlikely vehicle. And in quirky news, Brian Smith and I talk about creating a brand image for a car. You can find more information at drivenmedia.com.au or previous programs are available as podcasts on Spotify or iTunes. Or you can go to our Facebook page, Overdrive City. So let's start the program with the news. When autonomous vehicles began to look more promising, many companies started to consider how this could revolutionise taxi and ride-sharing industries. But COVID-19 has totally disrupted this concept because of the fear of getting into a vehicle that others may have contaminated. Gentex engineers are now tackling this public health issue of vehicle cabin cleanliness. Dr Lydia Buraba has reported that COVID-19 can be dispersed through laughing, yelling, sneezing and simply talking. A sneeze can unleash a turbulent cloud of micron-sized droplets at velocities of 100 feet per second and travel up to 8 metres. Possible solutions include smoke-detecting devices that use optical electronics, Gentex-designed and built cameras, light sensors nanomaterials capable of sensing health threats to driver and or passengers, and all of which is analysed with the help of artificial intelligence. With Holden leaving the market, Australian police forces have chosen a range of different alternatives. Now New Zealand police have taken a direction similar to Europe, more than Australia. They will be replacing their Holden fleet with Skodas, built in the Czech Republic. The specific model is the Skoda Superb station wagon in either the 162-kilowatt two-wheel drive or 206-kilowatt all-wheel drive layout. New Zealand has some 2,000 primary response vehicles currently, and they saw Holden's withdrawal as an opportunity to reduce carbon emissions and ensure value for money across their fleet. When frontline staff tested the Skodas, they liked the large, wide-opening doors, easy-to-read instruments, front and rear visibility, and the space for rear passengers. Electric and hybrid vehicles were tested, but limitations including power efficiency and the total cost of ownership meant that they were not the preferred option. If a chief executive has to get out into the real world, he can often bring about significant changes in their products. Elon Musk, entrepreneur and CEO of Tesla, recently tried to find a parking spot for his Model X in Berlin. The Model X is a large SUV with phenomenal acceleration, but this was no help to him in finding a space he could fit into. He subsequently hinted that Tesla may develop a smaller, compact car for European markets. 
Musk is also trying to develop a better battery to overcome the more traditional concerns with electric vehicles, their range. Tesla claimed that their current vehicles with the best performance range can travel 600 kilometres between charges, but they say they are aiming for a 1,000 kilometre range. Musk has previously lamented the high cost of raw battery materials, which is another hurdle to be faced. Testing car design or trying to train drivers with computer simulation has not had the real feel of driving a car. Volvo test drivers are now getting behind the virtual wheel wearing a full-body haptic suit and a mixed-reality headset. Haptic means related to a sense of feel, and haptic feedback creates the illusion of feeling an object or a force within the virtual world. Feeling the steering wheel or a seat that simulates the sidewards force when driving around a corner, for example. Volvo has real images of roads, road signs and nature that they can then add to with virtual objects such as other cars, wild animals or pedestrians to test driver reactions. The full body suit has 10 inertial sensors and biosensing which can measure users' stress levels, heartbeat and eye movement to give a good understanding of how the user is feeling in a certain traffic or safety situation. According to a survey by the Bosch company, nearly 90% of motorcycle riders use their smartphone to prepare for or follow up on trips. A third of those polls admitted to using their smartphone while riding. Motorcycle riders have to look down at their dials for safety reasons, such as keeping within the speed limits, but also they need other information such as navigational directions. Distraction and frustration can build up if you have to keep swapping between screens for different information. Bosch has developed a split-screen display that, they say, will allow riders to keep relevant information in constant view. The device has a 10 and a quarter inch screen that links to your phone system and will debut on a 2021 BMW Sports Tourer, the first production bike to display a full colour navigation map in the instrument cluster. And that has been the news. America is proud of its big sporting events, its traditional sports like the US Opens in golf and tennis, but also their unique approach to, say, football in the Super Bowl. Now, in motor racing, it's the Indianapolis 500 on a banked circuit, a style of competition that is really at the heart of their racing. But it's not just American good old boys who have been inspired by this event. Now, John Smales, journalist and author on motor racing in Australia, has written a book on the Indy 500 from the perspective of the Australian and New Zealanders who have ventured there. And Antipodeans have made an impact, including from the very beginning. John's book is titled Speed Kings, Australia and New Zealand's Quest to Win the World's Greatest Motor Race. It's a really good read. Hey, John, I love your approach. Oh, thank you very much indeed, David. I have to say it was an absolute joy to write it as well. It exposed me to a lot of things I hadn't known before. Now, of course, known as the Brickyard, but it didn't start out. The early days, the very early days, it wasn't bricks, was it? He built it out of crushed earth to begin with, but it just wasn't up to any sort of sustained speed, Mm. and it was killing people as well. This was in the days before the 500-mile race came into existence. There were two years in which they ran motorcycle races and car races there, and it was a killing field. 
So they needed to do something. They looked at various engineering approaches to what they could pave the place with. Concrete wasn't going to work because of extremes of temperature. And finally, the Wabash Brick Company just up the road said, hey, what about us? And they turned up with you know, literally rail car loads of bricks and laid them in less than uh, four months. So from start to finish, they laid 3.2 million bricks in a very, very distinct engineering fashion of rise and fall of the brick and how the car would run over it. And they did all that in less than four months. It was an engineering effort that you just couldn't imagine occurring today. 3.2 million bricks. Putting the last one in must have been a great exercise. Was it a chance for publicity? Very much so. They, they gave the mayor of, uh, of Indianapolis the opportunity to lay the golden brick. So the story, I mean, never let the facts get in the way of a good story. Uh, it wasn't made of gold at all. It was made of bronze. And in fact, it was a melted down carburetor because one of the owners of the speedway, there were four, four partners in it, owned a carburetor company, and they simply took the materials from which he made uh, his carbs and turned that into uh, he turned that into the golden brick. I don't know if it still exists, to be absolutely honest. I've, I've never really looked into it. Some 50 years after the Indianapolis Motor Speedway was built, they paved over all but one yard of the bricks. And so even today, the competitors drive over what's called the yard of bricks right at the start-finish line, but I'm pretty certain that the golden brick isn't there. And I wonder what's happened to it. I must look into that. Meantime, the yard of bricks is about as important in motor racing as the Blarney Stone is in Irish history. <laughs> you can't go to Indianapolis without getting down on your hands and knees and kissing the brick. John, are you saying that the promotion of it had some exaggeration, some overstatement, some hyperbole? David, heaven, heaven forbid, gee, these guys knew what they were doing. You're leading, I know, into the first Australian to ever race there, a guy called Rupert Jeffkins, who was born at Maitland in New South Wales in 1881 and who finally found his way to being an entrant in the very first Indianapolis 500 uh, in 1911. Now, let me tell you, Rupert invented hyperbole. <laughs> he had speed. I've done a lot of research on Rupert. In fact, while he's been a bit of an enigma in Australian motor racing, I finally set out to see if I could nail him. And I can't say that I've actually done it completely because he's quicksilver, but I've got a lot of him in the book. This is a guy who relied on the fact that news travelled quite slowly in the, in the early 1900s. And so he made outrageous claims about his successes in American and European motor racing, for that matter. I found that he claimed to have come 10th in the Indianapolis 500, claimed to have come 8th in the Indianapolis 500, the first one. Official records show that he may have scraped in a 17th, but as a relief driver. <laughs> but because Carl G. Fisher expunged the records of the very first race, because there was too much controversy around who did what over on what lap, there's no record of the fact that, that our man Rupert actually even competed uh, in the first Indianapolis. I've got photographs of him in trial, so I know that he turned up and, and drove a car. But whether he actually got to drive in the actual race itself, is one of the great mysteries. Don't get me wrong, my book is not full of maybes and possibles. No. It's full of as many facts as I could gather. And the big fact I've got 
is that Rupert next year, the following year, 1912, rode alongside the great Ralph De Palma in the Mercedes and they came within one lap of victory in his giant Mercedes until the thing finally blew all of its oil and most of its inside mechanicals out on the bricks with one lap to go. And there's a magic photograph of Rupert up the back of the car pushing it manfully towards the finish line with Ralph walking alongside one finger on the steering wheel, kind of steering it towards the finish and maybe offering just a little bit of motive power to get it there. But Rupert certainly was the engine in that last 400 metres towards the finish line. And they came 11th, but were disqualified because the rule said they had to finish under motive. Their own. And they didn't do that. Yeah. But that's Rupert, who I think one day will be regarded as being the pioneer of Australian motor racing as our first export to the, the world markets. You said he rode in the car. He went as the mechanic. What was a mechanic's role? They call them mechanicians. Now, why, I don't know, and I can't find it in any dictionary, but that's what they were called. And the mechanic's role was quite large, actually. For a start, they were the fuel pump, so they had this massive pump effectively between their legs which, with which they had to pump fuel from the back to the, to the engine. Then they had an oil pump as well, which was even more important than the fuel in one respect because these things used about a litre every 10 laps. So... Keeping the, uh, the oil up to the car was pretty important. Then they were the eyes of the car because in 1911, before 1911, the rear vision mirror hadn't been invented. So they, the mechanicians, had to look forward often to each side to let the driver know what was happening. And then finally, because even the bricks were so punishing on the driver that there was massive vibration going through the driver's arms to the degree that the mechanicians needed to actually reach across and become, if you will, a very early power steering to assist the uh, the driver to steer the car. What sort of power were we talking about there? You you said it was a you know the first one was a big car. I presume that means particularly engine wise. What sort of power would they put out? They were allowed up to uh, up to nine point seven liters. So there there was, in fact, a uh, there were rules by which they raced. Mm. So 9.7 litres was the most they were allowed. And they were putting out about 200 horsepower, about 150 kilowatts. So it was a fair amount of horsepower to be having in the day, but it was, it was going to the back wheels through all sorts of uh, devices, not the least of which was chain drive back in the day. So there was a lot of power lost before the... Uh, what, what power they had got to the uh, got to the ground. You were saying the first one about 70 miles an hour, 115 kilometres an hour for an average lap. That's not mucking around. At the time, it was by no means mucking around. It was uh, it was pretty good. The first race was won in about six and a half hours. And uh, when you look at the kind of averages that they were doing up around the 80 kilometres an hour on, on track, 80 miles an hour, I'm sorry, on track, that was that was quite exceptional actually for its time and it came down to the uh, at its time again the unique layout of uh, the Indianapolis Motor Speedway two very long straights two quite shorter straights that they call short shoots and four corners now people think it's a big bold circuit it's really not the camber is only nine degrees so in fact it comes down to being not much more of a bowl than many of 
the more cambered corners on motor racing tracks around the world. And that takes a, a degree of bravery, David, mm. to actually pitch into turn one especially. And these days you're approaching turn one at approaching 400 kilometres an hour and it's, it, it presents itself as a 90-degree left-hander to the degree that some of the later drivers say that their brain just simply won't let them keep their foot flat to the floor. And, and David, sorry, Jeffrey Brabham, in fact, told me, because Jeff you know, followed his dad there many years later, Jeffrey told me that his way through was to plant his right foot on top of his left foot to, to keep the left foot flat. Sorry, put the other way around. Yeah. So he actually had to put both both feet on the accelerator simply to persuade the one that was attached to the metal to stay flat. And that was John Smales, journalist and author. Next week we chat to John about the role Sir Jack Brabham and Ron Turanak played in revolutionising the American IndyCar design. You're listening to Overdrive. Some years ago, when I had first started work, some many years ago, I saw a photo in a magazine of a rally car. Now, when you do a hard right-hand corner, all the weight goes onto the left-hand wheel, and in some cases, the right wheel can even get in the air. Well, if it's in the air, it doesn't need to be near the road. And the picture has this rally car with the right wheel basically hanging out over a gully, and quite a steep gully at that. I loved it then, could never find it for many years, but I've just seen a photo of it again. Now, it reminded me of a story that uh, Dean and I experienced when we were watching a rally in Canberra. I thought I'd get him to tell the tale. G'day, Dean. Hello, David. Where were we and what was happening? Well, it was a very long time ago, as I recall. It was 1978, and it was in the Castrol Rally, which uh, was conducted in the forests uh, just to the west behind Canberra. Well, what was the circumstance? What sort of corner were we standing on? The rally was a day-night rally, and, uh, and so there were some stages during the daytime uh, around the back suburbs of Canberra, and then it found its way westwards into the pine forests and the mountains around uh, Mount Stromlo and the Tidbinbilla base tracking station. There were mostly pine forests with sandy tracks winding in and around and up and down, lots of uphill and downhill and short, sharp descents and creek crossings and um, wonderful country for car rallying and great for spectating as well. We were on a corner. It was a sloping, uh, some sloping ground. It was a right-hand bend and the cars came at really quite breakneck speed over the crest of the hill, down a little bit and then around this right-hand bend, which dropped off to the right, uh, a reasonable sort of drop, but there had been a fallen tree which had been cleared away with a chainsaw, but the log, the remaining part of the tree, was still sticking out. And uh, it was a substantial log that would really wreck a car if, if it hit it. We were there to watch Stig Blomvisk amongst the top drivers of, of their time who were in Australia. And Blomvisk was driving his, uh, I think, works-prepared Saab, the Saab 99, and... It was a left-hand drive car, of course, and so he was sitting on the wrong side of the car, approaching this corner with a log protruding, and uh, couldn't see the log, but we were astonished to see that he took the corner so fast, and the front wheel of the car just touched the protruding log, and a little piece of a little wood chip sprung off the log as the, the Saab disappeared around the corner at a great rate of knots, and... 
And so I thought this is an opportunity too good to pass up, and I darted out and picked up a bit of wood chip. <laughs> and uh, so I had a little souvenir of the great Swedish rally driver Stig Blomqvist. The Saab 99 front-wheel drive yes. family sedan, almost. And quite a heavy car for rallying, too. Two-litre, um, eight-valve engine, uh, quite powerful, but still driving a reasonably heavy car. The opposition were the hotshot Ford Escort RS1800. There were two works cars driven by uh, Greg Carr and Colin Bond. The Holden dealer team were there with uh, Wayne Bell and George Shepard, and they had a Holden Gemini. But the, the one that took my, uh, really took my interest in the rally was Ross Dunkerton, the Datsun, the works uh, Nissan driver who was driving a Datsun Ute. <laughs> <laughs> I think the car before it was Bondi's in that yellow Escort, as you say, of which was fast, but it didn't seem to flow quite as much as Blomquist got that Saab sedan to do. The escorts were tremendously fast, but they danced around the road quite a lot. They must have been uh, wonderfully exciting things to drive, but by the same token, take an enormous skill to control them. Wonderful rally cars, really terrific. The Holden Gemini was a bit more pedestrian, but driven by Wayne Bell, who was a, uh, a really fast, uh, stylish driver. The rally car seemed a nice balance of that particular vehicle. Just the right size. They came with a pretty good heritage, being an Isuzu um, uh, base from Japan, I think, and fast and, uh, and quite reliable uh, cars. Pretty popular with privateers as well, although not as popular as the ubiquitous uh, Datsun 1600. Of which you owned and drove one. <laughs> and I remember sitting in the passenger seat with you. You went round the corner, the, the tail went wide out, and you just leisurely corrected it, and I thought, <laughs> Dean, this has been a great experience. The other thing of Canberra was the mine shaft, which now is lost to rallying, I believe. That was a tremendous bit of road, uh, quite close to the main bitumen road going in and out, so spectators could get there pretty easily. There was a, uh, a fairly long straight uh, forest road along the top of it, which bumped and wound and, and led to a quite sudden drop. It was called the mine shaft, and um, it probably would have been... Uh, uh, maybe a 40-degree slope going down, probably about um, 100 metres long. And uh, it was the fastest drivers who were the brave ones. And uh, if you could go over the crest, uh, um, the, the lip of the road, and, um, you know, you could get airborne, but that would be spectacularly dangerous. And, and I think there was also a bit of a dip at the bottom. It was a time when cars bounced much more when they landed. <laughs> You watch a modern rally car, and the thing I've said about them that is just staggering technology is that they fly through the air and land, stay stable as they land. And, of course, the, the Scandinavians, the, the Swedes and the Norwegians and the Finns, were just so experienced at it, having grown up and cut their teeth on icy, snow-covered roads. Of course, it gave, gave rise to that great expression, uh, to finish first, you must be first finish. <laughs> <laughs> they were damned good drivers, and still are. And also, David, I must say, they were all incredibly generous and friendly and easygoing from all accounts. They skated on the edge, but were remarkably laid back about it. Oh, yes, yes. Dean, lovely to talk to you. Thanks a lot for your reminiscences. Thank you, David. Good to be with you. And that's Dean Oliver, our artist-in-residence, ex-rally driver, the one who could look at rallying as an artistic expression. You're listening to Overdrive.
And uh, as we get to the final part of our program, a little while ago we talked about Peugeot, and they've got a new 2008 small SUV on the market. We interviewed uh, Kate Gillis, who is the managing director, and she talked a lot about the brand. And would you buy a Peugeot if it costs, as she said, 10% more than the opposition? As which some might say, well, it's actually nearer 40 depending on the opposition. But nonetheless, is a brand, is there something that the heritage and that worthwhile? David, I think some of the most um, valued and powerful brands are car brands. And brand is absolutely crucial, I think, um, particularly at the at the upper levels, at the kind of more in the luxury car, you know, um, your Audi, BMW. Mm. Peugeot, Peugeot, I think, a struggle to be seen as like an influential brand. They're, they're seen as a quirky brand, I think, you know, like Citroen or, or Peugeot being a, a kind of a, just off to the left, you know, and behind a little. So so they're not the kind of um, Mercedes, um, you know, BMW, Audi, uh, prestige slash sporting market, mm. you know, performance. I drove a 404, David, a Peugeot 404. And, and what a classic car. It was It was made incredibly toughly it was a very strong and powerful car and reliable as far as french cars go but it had that quirkiness the indicator didn't have a positive click right when you used it it was more like a fork in in porridge and you would just sort of shove it up and and you know trust that the indicator light was going had quirks about the way the gear shift worked and where things were located inside the car and I've, i've i've owned a peugeot quite recently and i I must say I got rid of it because I found it to be not a very reliable car and and not terribly well made. So so I think I don't think people would buy a Peugeot for the brand and pay extra. I mean I I'll tell you what I'll what I would buy of Peugeots and pay extra for as pepper grinder, right? They make fantastic <laughs> salt and pepper grinders, really really good quality stuff, but you look at that and you go I'm I'm not seeing that in the car. Maybe they should give away a couple of salt and pepper shakers or grinders to each new car purchaser so that when you're sitting around the dinner table and you you ask for the salt and that, you say people will notice it's got a Peugeot brand on it. Mm. It's a strong brand and it's been around a long time, but I don't think people associate it necessarily with prestige or performance or reliability. She said that they're actually getting back on people's lists. People would have one or two cars to look at. They might, Peugeot wasn't on that. The other thing they're doing, of course, is getting into small vans, mm. which is the other side of the, the transport market. Look, Dyson sells, you know, a vacuum cleaner for 10 times what a vacuum cleaner ever costs and, and, you know, completely reset the perceptions of value and what people are prepared to pay for a, an implement, a fan or a hairdryer or something like that. So I guess if you're bold and relaunch and sort of say, you know, you're getting something very different here, and therefore we're going to ask you to pay for it and, and you'll pay to be associated with that brand to say, I have that vehicle, good luck. But but I'm not sure that they have the ability to, to differentiate that vehicle from its own brand history. I had a mate who was in the advertising game, a couple of things. He They tried to market, I think it was buttermilk ice cream, and they did it at a low price with a big container. 
it looked like it was that you know buy for the price rather yeah. than the value yeah. and it tasted some you know quite a few people would have said better than ice cream that it bombed badly he reckons they should have upped the price and decreased the size of the container and made it more special made it special and that that's what ice cream companies are doing now so you you buy the big tub and it's the cheap tub and if you want something that's special, you're buying a little one and it's like, you know, almost a, a limited edition. Mm. It's special, it's more expensive, it's small, it must be special. Look, there's a lot to be said about marketing and it's a, it's a dark art. It's hard to shrug off unless they can create their own brand, David. So, you know, like Toyota does with Lexus, maybe Peugeot needs to launch a new brand. It's called Citroen. <laughs> <laughs> no. No, don't do that. <laughs> Pick another one. Brian, it's always good to talk to you. I appreciate your time. Thank you very much. Thank you, David. Brian Smith here on Overdrive, where we're talking some unusual, different, a different take on marketing and selling motor vehicles in the Australian market. And this has been Overdrive. My thanks to John Smales, Dean Oliver, Brian Smith and Paul Just for their great help with this program. Overdrive is syndicated across Australia on the Community Radio Network. For more information, go to drivenmedia.com.au or previous programs, as we say, are available as podcasts on iTunes or Spotify. And, of course, there's always our Facebook page, Overdrive City. I'm David Brown. Thanks for listening.